name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The conversion of St. Paul is, is central to the New Testament for at least two reasons. St. Paul, though he has no, the, the feast though has no integral connection to the season of Epiphany, yet it's the fulfillment of the Epiphany message. We remember that in the Feast of Epiphany was the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles in the person of, of the Magi who came from far and led to Christ. We know in Jesus' own ministry there were implications that the gospel go to the Gentiles, the woman of Canaan, and other places where Jesus shows mercy to those who are not uh, a part of God's covenant people at that time. But the fulfillment of those things was not yet. Jesus still said, I only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the Magi went home, not yet fully understanding the fulfillment of the covenant of Christ. With the conversion of St. Paul, St. Paul is the first person sent to the Gentiles. And this conversion, in conjunction with the story of Peter and Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts, are the sort of dual means by which there's a change in the constituency of God's covenant people and also a change in the requirements of what it means to be part of that people. The story of Peter and Cornelius in Acts is that Peter is praying his noonday prayers and he has a vision that tells him to go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius was an uncircumcised Gentile God-fearer, which is one who would attend the synagogue, but had not yet become an observant Jew, had not yet become circumcised. It was a major disincentive for, for conversion. <laughs> and so Peter, Peter, did, Peter would not as an observant Jew go into the home of an uncircumcised person. That was, that would consider to be making you sort of ritually unclean. And so Peter objected, but the vision, he said, told him to go anyway, because what God has made clean, you can't call him. So Peter went to Cornelius' home. He preached the gospel to Cornelius, essentially, that he preached on Pentecost to the assembled people there. And as he preached, the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his family. That is, they received the Holy Spirit, even though they weren't circumcised. And so this was evidence to Peter that God was accepting the Gentiles on the basis of faith without having to fully become a part of God's people by circumcision and by being subject to uh, the Torah and the observances that were in the Jewish tradition. Now St. Paul's conversion, St. Paul is actually going to go to Gentiles in the ancient world, in Asia Minor, in Greece, and, and begin to preach. And when Gentiles believed, he would baptize them and they would become a part of God. And then the first major controversy in the church was in Acts 15 when uh, the question, well, do these Gentiles who are coming into the church need to be circumcised as you had in the old covenant? And the answer was no, that, that, you, that now you become part of God's covenant people by faith in Jesus Christ, by means of the sacrament of the baptism. Or a second significance of St. Paul's conversion is that it illustrates the transition from the Old Testament focus to the New Testament focus in a certain given incident. St. Paul's, Saul's faith before his conversion was rooted in Torah, as that Torah was articulated in the tradition that we would now call the 
calendar. So you were circumcised, you ate kosher, you, you did certain things, and if you did all these things as a Pharisee, St. Paul was, would, would say, zealously, you were zealous for this, it's not the same as being morally perfect, but your zeal for that would, would mean that God would count you righteous because you were zealous for the Torah. In the conversion of St. Paul, we see the replacement of the Torah with the person of Jesus Christ. And it's important to understand that the, as the Old Covenant gives way to the new, new Covenant, Jesus Christ fulfills the role of the Torah. He is the Torah incarnate, the Word made flesh. And so the clarification, the fulfillment we see is that one is not a part of God's covenant people by virtue of one's relation to the Torah, but by virtue of one's relation to the person of Jesus Christ, whom we, we meet in, in our lives, in whom we put our faith. St. Paul explained this transition in his own life in Philippians, his transition from one who was an observant, or a pure-blooded Jew observant, to one who came to the life of Christ to that wasn't important. He said, whatever gain I have in my former practice, I count as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, based on my observance of the Torah, but a righteousness which is from God on the basis of the faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Likewise, the essence of our faith is also an encounter with Jesus Christ that changes us. And it's often easy to lose sight of this in our practice of faith. Sometimes it's thought that to be a Christian means you, you know the creeds and the commandments, you memorize those, maybe you do that for confirmation, and then you uh, try real hard to be a good person, and that sometimes passes the definition of a Christian. But it's possible to know the commandments and the creeds by heart. It's possible to strive to be a good person and not know Christ. That was Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. Conversions are an essential part of Christian initiation. Christian initiation historically has been understood to have two parts. Conversion of the heart and baptism. Baptism in the water of baptism is the outward sign through which God <coughs> communicates to us the gift of the Spirit that changes us. Conversion of the heart is, is the way our hearts are prepared to receive that gift. It's, the conversion is, it can be a moment, it can be a process, but that uh, experience by which we come to be convicted of, of our sin, of our essential fallenness, and by which we come to turn for our faith in Jesus Christ is conversion. And that allows us then to receive baptism will give, make it effectual in our lives. This works uh, sometimes in adults we think of conversion and then receiving the gift. Many of us are baptized as children. And the church has always believed that conversion of the heart 
would follow naturally upon that gift. So that as, as the young person is instructed in the faith and the heart is softened, the gift given in baptism becomes more deeply rooted and bears fruit. But the gift given in baptism cannot take root in a hardened heart and cannot bear fruit. We can, for a kind of analogy, just look at the parable of the soul and the seed, where we have the ground, the soft ground is where the seed is planted and grows, and the hard ground is where the seed can't take root, and it becomes unfruitful. Conversions change us. As we experience conversion of heart and receive the gift, what happens to Saul, as we kind of say, Paul happens to us. It's very instructive if we look at our epistle lesson today that the very first lines of our lesson are that St. Paul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. The very last line is that St. Paul was preaching the gospel. So he goes in a fairly lengthy narrative from, from an enemy of Christ to an ambassador. In our lives, we see the similar kind of change as our hearts are converted and as a baptismal gift becomes effective in changing us, we, we are transformed. Our anger, our bitterness is softened and becomes love and generosity. Our, our self-centered lives are, are made outwards and our sin we confess is replaced with virtues and dispositions, faith, hope, and love. And as we see this, this is the evidence that we know that this thing that happened in St. Paul is also happening in us. I also think it's sort of instructive to look at the conversion of St. Paul as, as a paradigm of what we might call holy Holy war, we hear about it in the world where people violently kill people. But the Bible also talks about holy war. We look at Revelation, Jesus is the holy warrior who rides out in a white horse to conquer, and the ends of all his enemies are subdued. And here we have an insight into method. St. Paul is an enemy of our Lord. And our Lord appears to him in a personal encounter to which his opposition is conquered. And it's instructive. He's conquered simply by the appearing. Christ appears. In the light of the appearance of the presence of Christ, Saul sees what he's doing in a new light. Jesus said, what are you doing? He had to reassess what he was doing in the light of the new reality of Christ's presence, which he experienced through a personal encounter. The church is called to go make disciples of the nation, which is in essence to carry out holy war. And I think this is instructive, gives us some insight into what this means. We are the body of Christ. And Christ is in his church and in each member of the body. And as we go out and bear witness, the more truly we bear witness, the more truly the baptismal gift takes root the more truly our hearts are converted, the more truly we bear fruit and people look at that, then we're in the presence of the church, they'll be in the presence of Christ. And they'll see, they'll be 
we can be an opportunity for Jesus to have people to and say, what are you doing? And lead people to change. It's also instructive for evangelism that most conversions take uh, place through relationship. That people are not converted through argument and force. And, and neither is Paul wrote to Damascus. They're, they're converted because they come to know someone who belongs to Christ. And in that encounter, the light begins to shine. They begin to experience something <clears throat> called grace and love, which we should know that even though Jesus knocks St. Paul down, it's a very gracious encounter. Saul is killing his people, and he shows up, and in the very moment of conviction, there's also this inkling of acceptance, because he hasn't been purchased. There's going to be an opportunity here for change. And that's what we are in the world, the presence of Christ, who confronts people with the reality of their sin, doesn't deny that their sin, but provides means to bring into light and to cause people to change. And that's our vocation. It's a large vocation. It's why we have to reflect that in our lives. We can't go out and act selfishly, self-centeredly, say we belong to Christ, but not bear witness to that and have those kinds of conversions take place through us. We should understand that conversion is an ongoing process. There is certainly, for many people, a uh, a, a moment you can, they can remember this day I went to a, maybe a crusade and accepted Christ or there might be a moment of illumination. For some there isn't that moment. For some it's a gradual series of things. But anyway we look at the beginning, conversion is a continual process. That Jesus appears to us in ever greater light and glory, reveals ever more about us that leads us to the, you know, I mean, just even now, how to say, what are you doing? And in different seasons of life, we're prepared to hear something new and to grow in new ways. The important thing to bear in mind in light of the idea that our faith is an encounter with a person is this is what's supposed to happen with faith all the time. Our life of prayer, our liturgy, is the discipline of relationship. And as we live it, we should hear. And if we're living a life of faith, a life of prayer, we're not hearing, hey, what are we doing once in a while? And the cost is to readjust our compass and live in a new way, then we're not living the life of that relationship with Christ. Now sometimes it's thought that formal religion, like liturgy and uh, formal liturgical prayer somehow conflicts with this idea of being in a relationship with someone. That's a silly thing. All of our relationships have liturgies. Marriage relationships, for example, have great liturgies. Friendships, that we get together, we may get together the same place, we'll probably greet each other about the same way. Um, there's liturgies of giving gifts, liturgies of service around the home, giving breakfast, a meal, a coffee, doing short in exactly the same way. This is necessary. The problem is when it gets divorced from relationship. If you're just doing things for a 
come to church and through the liturgy, but we have bitterness or we're, you know, have to do this again. So the, the, the fullness of our faith is the merger of form and sort of spirit of this relationship that takes on a certain form. What we actually do in the liturgy is we script out the form of our perfect worship. As we enter into it, we're learning who we should be. But we have to bring a converted heart to that. So we're open to learn. We bring a hardened heart when we fire being here and serve as well you do too long and all those kind of things that everyone will bother us. So it's continuous conversion. We, we, we come each week to encounter Christ again, to hear from Him. Or, or maybe even to say, to see ourselves again in the light of His presence. And as we see ourselves again in the light of His presence, we see ourselves more clearly, where our confession becomes better. We receive grace in new ways. We grow in new ways. So the conversion of St. Paul reminds us that the essence of our faith is an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And that we're aiming to know Christ, not just to be about the business of doing religious things. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.